This is Live from the Table, the official podcast of the world-famous Comedy Cellar, coming at you on Sirius XM 99, Raw Dog, and as a podcast, this is Dan Natterman with Noam Dorman, owner of the world-famous and ever-expanding Comedy Cellar. We got Perry L. Ashenbrand here on mic number three. Hello. She is our producer. She is... Wearing a Jordash jeans. Jordash, vintage Jordash from the 70s? Mm-hmm. 70s, and I think it, they, they went into the 80s a little bit. That's uh, owned by Israelis, or was Jordash? Uh, Israelis, it was Jews of some... No, no, some, Israelis, I know for sure. Israelis, okay. Uh, it's then, Syrian Jews or something like that. Be, be that as it may, uh, she is wearing a jumpsuit, denim jumpsuit. Uh, I didn't even see those in the 70s. I mean, you know, that's... I don't think I've ever seen a Jordache jumpsuit. Oh, I saw it. Every, every girl in my high school wore one of those. A jumpsuit? Yeah, okay. yeah, that, that could or, be. I don't, my memory the jeans is not with, the, with the stitching on the back. I feel so old. Um, the Jordache look. <laughs> George, go ahead. Sorry. I mean, is this is this like the closest I'm ever going to get to getting a compliment from the two of you? There wasn't a compliment. I've, I've given you compliments, oh. I think. <laughs> but uh, it, it's interesting what you're wearing. Very interesting. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, Norm and I are dressed like a, in a female mechanic, more modern uh, uh, attire. Um, we are waiting on our guest, Michael Mechanic, who wrote a book about money buying happiness. Norm, did you? I sent a couple of articles. That I guess disagree with his basic premise. Well, that's good. We can, you can you can you can stick it to him. Now, now I, so I tell you, I had a woman on a, on um, Hot Tubs podcast over the weekend. Okay, and uh, we won't be running that podcast. Why? What happened? Because um, I, I was I was like half paying attention for a while, and then I began to get the gist of what I was hearing. She's like a function. She she's a doc doctor. Or some I don't want to say her name, a doctor in uh, functional medicine. What does that mean? Well, that's I began to look at me, and I realized that she was um, a doctorate. Doctor, not a not a not an MD, not a medical doctor. So I I had the temerity to ask her because I feel like you're discussing financial. I mean, financially discussing uh, medical advice. Yeah, people uh, listening have the right to know that this is not a medical doctor. Right. So I said, wait a second. Are you a are you a, are you a, what, what are your credentials? I forget exactly how I asked. And she was like, not answering, not answering. And I said, listen, when you walk in your office, what? certificate is hanging on the walls in a medical school. So no, it wasn't like it's a PhD and blah, blah, blah. And then it just, it went downhill from there. And then she called me like, she said I wasn't smart. And then I said, well, yeah, I, I only have a high school education. And she said, well, that figures out. That makes sense. Then and I said, you're a snob. And it was, it was awful. <laughs> it was a great ribbon. I think is that. Why aren't you running? Her? Because I, I feel like she came on um, thinking it was going to be not that, but you know, it's hot times fault because you know, you know how I am. And I mean, she could have said, no, I'm not an MD, but I think actually I know better than medical doctors because blah, blah, my experience, like whatever it is, but right. instead she kind of showed fear. And, um, and I felt, and I said, and I said, listen, the, the only reason you wouldn't like you, you come on as a doctor, but obviously I, it seems like your, your intention is for people to think that you're a doctor, doctor. PhD is, I, I know they call it doctor, but what, what in, when you use the term doctor in the context of treating people medically. Right. Yeah. That's that you would assume that she's a medical. I mean, she could have just as well said, yeah, I have a doctorate in literature. Right, right, right. Sure. <laughs> right, right, right. That's what I was just thinking of. Well, right. I, I mean, so, so apparently, you know, it's <laughs> now it's, it's a it's nutrition and functional medicine and maybe, maybe it's legitimate. Like I'm open-minded about like acupuncture or whatever. I know I'm not saying that, um, that none of these fields have anything to offer. Mm -hmm. 
but I'm skeptical of them, you know, because they don't, because they don't have to go through the same double blind rigors that uh, conventional medicine does. And even conventional medicine gets it wrong much more often than we'd care to, you know, uh, that much more often than much more often than it ought to for us to have the kind of confidence that we still have in medicine. Well, you know? um, do we have confidence? I mean, you know, 10 years ago, it's hard to believe, was the ice bucket challenge, raising money for ALS. And there's, I don't think they've made any progress on that front. No, but it's things like... Or on Parkinson's, they don't seem to have made much progress. progress. It's not like, like two years ago, they said, well, actually, uh, mammograms are not worth... Like, is that true? Yeah, yeah. What do you mean? No, you're supposed to get your. Now they said that mammograms didn't actually extend life, and the, the only thing that they, the only thing that actually <laughs> hold up is uh, the, the finger test for prostate exam. Probably, <laughs> probably that old that old uh, uh, wisdom is still. We have with us just joining us remotely uh, through the magic of the internet. This is not this is Riverside that we're using. Or? Yeah. Riverside, yeah. Uh, Michael Mechanic. Hi. Cool name. You think of Mike and the Mechanics, you know. Oh, don't say that. I got to have to kill you. Okay. Yeah, you, you never heard that before, have you? I, actually, I did a whole another podcast about about how they ruined my life. Did I, Did you ever get in a podcast and they thought you were Mike from the Mechanics? Well, and, and that's Mike. Still, his name is Mike Ru- Michael Rutherford from the, from Genesis, right? Yeah. Yeah. But we had, we had fun basically deconstructing one of his songs and talking about why it stinks. That was the name of the podcast. <laughs> um, the way, you know, something. Why does that song stink? All I need is a miracle because that's a good song. We had a guy on our podcast once years ago, Dan, Dr. Sears. I don't know if you remember. And I wanted Dr. Sears. I just had my first child. I wanted Dr. Sears, the the, the uh, child-rearing expert. Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be Dr. Sears, the diet guy. Oh. We got halfway through realizing, well, you're not the Dr. Sears. <laughs> He's asking questions about children. He's like, yes. <laughs> Michael Mechanic. Well, I, I can talk about music. I can talk about whatever. Michael Mechanic is a, is a writer. He's an author. He just uh, has, he has a book out called Jackpot, How the Super Rich Really Live and How Their Wealth Harms Us All. And that uh, that's uh, available from Simon and Schuster. Welcome, Michael Mechanic. Thanks for having me. To our podcast, um, I guess Noam wanted you on because you wrote an article uh, in the Atlantic about money and happiness. Well, this is an issue that not, I don't want. I'm just just I'm for me, even though I of course want him on. But this is an issue that we always talk about: money, buying happiness, and that kind of stuff. So I figured that's interest to all of us. Anyway, so uh, and and the the um, the is it called a subtitle? At how it harms all of us, the super rich. What's the title again, Dan? Exactly, a jackpot. Yeah, how the super rich really live and how their wealth harms us all. How their wealth harms us all. I want to make sure we get to that part too. But go ahead, you just start. Tell us your basic thesis about money and happiness. About all of it, whatever, whatever you start. Well, I mean, jackpot is kind of an exploration of wealth and the U.S. the American wealth fantasy and kind of how we buy into this myth of you know striking it rich ever since our founding essentially we've been obsessed with this stuff like our first the first people to sail into chesapeake bay first white settlers came here to get to get rich basically not for religious freedom and you know the gold rush completely reshaped the way california came to being and uh, you know people left their fields behind and they left their stores empty just like ran out to get the gold but the people who made the money were the people who were selling the tools to the people trying to make the money and it's sort of the same way today it's like you can make a lot of money off people's desire to get rich yes uh, uh the the um I, I would cite uh the people who make screenwriting software as a very good example of that uh, right. final draft you should see their headquarters Big, yeah, big, well, at a time in the gold rush, it was potatoes. These guys got rich selling potatoes to the miners, like a bucket. Also, acting, you know? acting teachers make a lot of money. Hmm. 
and their students uh, typically uh, do not. So, right. so okay, so let, let's. So take, that's a, that's an analogous uh, situation. Let's take it step by step. So back in the day, in the days of the gold rush, people wanted to get rich, but I would imagine that the um, the things that money could buy you then might be more significant in terms of the change in your life that the, than the things that money buys you today in, in a certain way in terms of, you know, hot water, uh, uh, food. Well, you tell me, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. I'm well, guessing. I mean, you think about well, there's a lot more stuff you can buy now. Um, and it was probably more expensive than to just get the basics that you needed because, you know, you had to, to, you know, you had to build your own house or whatever. You, you know, you that's, had that's the kind of thing th there wasn't indoor house. plumbing. Um, right. You didn't have the things available. In fact, Andrew Carnegie's whole shtick was like, "Well, you know, my workers are poor because I don't pay them, but they have more than the kings of yore because the kings didn't have the technology that we have." You know, and that was in the twenties. Um, well, and now you can say, "Yeah, well, everybody's got a you know the homeless guy's got a cell phone, uh, but that doesn't you, know, you can't eat a cell phone." Well, but it, you know, I'm I'm always I always trip over that argument because I feel like on one sense, it's a rationalization. Yes. In another sense, there is something to that, that, uh, that um, there's a comparative wealth, which is, a, is, is in some ways mm -hmm. a psychological thing. And then there's the actual way that you're living, which in a certain way, Andrew Carnegie's wealth at his time bought him a lifestyle, which in, in certain ways would be considered poor today. You know, like, how could people live this way when, you know, he, he didn't well, <laughs> that might be an exaggeration. I'm glad you brought that up because that well, is he didn't a, have I guess he didn't have air conditioning uh, and uh, but, uh, yeah, but he had, you know, he had 100 people around him with fans just going and feeding him grapes. No, I'm just kidding, making that up. Um, yeah, it, it's true. Uh um, what was it? You pointed a point just a minute ago. It just slipped my well, mind. I said, in some ways, it's a rationalization, obviously, as an excuse to not pay people more and 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 um, a, a, a belittlement of of the real psychological phenomena that I don't give a shit what people are making in Europe. You're this is oh, ridiculous. Yeah. You live like this in America. And on, on, on the other hand, um, th when you think about the poverty overseas or in other places, it is. Right. A, a different situation entirely than what we consider as poverty here. So. Yeah, what well, you said that got my interest was the social comparisons, and and it's it's completely true. I mean, but but that's also what's toxic, right? It's like yeah. we compare ourselves immensely to the, our peers and the people around us, and I mean there there's research in my book where if you you, you move to a richer neighborhood, you you make your money, you 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 want to move up, right? So you move to where you have more space, a bigger house, whatever. And then the guy next to you expands his house and your happiness goes down. I mean, there, there's all these studies showing, you know, that when you <clears throat> go into a bigger house, it's only you're, you're only satisfied insofar as the houses around it are the same size. And then somebody upgrades and then your house satisfaction goes, they call it house satisfaction, goes down. So it's a constant that's not, sort that's of not just Jewish people. That's just not, not just my people. So you can... <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. I'm half, so you know. Oh, I feel right. it. I feel it. You can laugh. <laughs> so what um, do you think about that? I mean, is is that something that social policy actually needs to concern itself with, or, we, or should we say, well, you know, that's your mishugas, that's your craziness? Um, you know, get yeah. You can, I mean, you can't really you you can't change people's psychology. They're always going to feel that way. Mm -hmm. um, but what's sort of happening is our, our 
as the wealth gap increases, as there's sort of a striation of society that's like the ladders, the, the rungs of the ladder are getting farther and farther apart. So the idea of what is success is looking farther and farther up there, you know. And we sort of fetishize the rags to riches stories. And we hear them all the time because they're fun to tell. The media talks, likes to talk about this guy had nothing and now he's looking at he's a billionaire. Um, but that almost never happens. And so instead we have these policies that kind of take the people who already have wealth and give them a big advantage in order to maintain it. I mean, Why just do you like, say it almost never happens? Almost, almost everybody I know who's quite well off is a rags to riches story. No, no, honestly. How, I, how I many you know? I, well, I mean... Everybody I know, I, well, depends what you call my riches. Well, you're in comedy, it, though, you it know. Depends what, depends Every, what you mean by rags as well. I'm saying the, the people that I know that are doing well, not maybe not super rich, but, you know, people that you wouldn't, nobody would shed a tear for. Um, almost all of them were kind of broke when I, when we were younger, you know. Well, yeah, but we were all broke when we were younger, right? Um, the the inheritance hasn't come in yet. Uh, no, no, I mean, it's true. I mean, pe obviously, people make good. But if you look at sort of pr the predictive, if you look statistically, you know, at very high income people, they tend to come from high income backgrounds. I mean, you, you, the, the best predictor of a person's wealth is their parents' wealth. Well, I, okay. I, I mean, if you come from a wealthy family, you're probably not going to wind up poor. So, so that's that correlation is going to be very good. But I don't know what that tells us and and by the way I'm not I'm not actually contradicting you because my anecdotal experience could absolutely not be correct but that doesn't really change whether or not everyday people are moving up that ladder and it seems to me a lot of people do move up that ladder and even Elon Musk by the way but he, all right that's a he may be an outlier but a lot of Bill Gates, even even some of the famous people that we know, Steve Jobs, none of these people were born to wealth. Steve well, Jobs G Gates, is, Steve Jobs was adopted. I think Gates came from a family of certainly upper middle class. I don't know if they were super rich. Yeah, they, they they were they did okay. They were Palo Altoans, you know. Um, I don't know, like Mark Zuckerberg's uh, father was a yeah, dentist. Yeah, well, they. Did I don't know. Well. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but some but somehow he was at you know Exeter and Andover, you know these very well, fancy. Could it also be that 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 intelligence begets wealth and intelligence is inherited so that somebody that was smart enough to become a doctor is more likely to have and, and make money is more likely to have a son or daughter with the brain power to pursue a Before field. Before your answer, I let the, let the jury know it. I'm, I'm moving my chair away from Dan on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that. That argument is a very slippery slope towards, you know, badness. Um, well, I think I, mean, there's something, I think the, there's something to it, at least an element of. Uh, well, yeah, but when you think about a lot of that, is, a lot of this, a lot of that is education, and it's like you live, you grow up in a household with educated parents. It's full of books they read to you. They put you on paths to sort of activities that are enriching and so forth, and they have the means to do it. You know, it's very hard to come from an atmosphere of sort of poverty and go that far. I mean, it's, it's, it happens, but it's rare. It really is rare. Okay. Well, let, let, let me, let me, I'm just saying that we over, we, you know, we put too much hope in the idea that we're going to get there this way. Right. Um, let me, let me just uh, through our own grit. Let me rehabilitate Dan a little bit and say only the well, following I I, just in our, in our closed little circle here of, of people who are related to Jewish people. I don't know almost any Jewish person who's not two generations away from somebody who was flat broke and okay i i'm with you yeah. but and i was there too like my my grandfather came over from eastern europe yeah. nothing 
and he worked in a, making dresses in a sweatshop in, on the Lower East Side, right? Yeah. Yeah. And his wife didn't work, and he wanted my dad and you know my my uh, my dad and his brother and sister to just not get educated, just go into you know he they you should go work. We need money. You go straight to a job. You know education is a waste. And his wife said, no, 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 no. They're going to college, right? So she, you know, but college was free. You know, New York City College, free. And you know, you do well, and you get a scholarship, and so that's how it worked. And you know, he you know became a professor. He did quite well for himself. So um, I, I totally agree with you. But there were more. I feel like there were also more opportunities. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you this, and then I want to. I want to hear about how the, the super wealthy hurt us. I was saying the other day. So my father started um, as a, was a fuller brush man. I don't know if you know what a fuller brush is. He was a salesman, and he. He, he, he had a lot of, um, he was kind of a ne'er-do-well too, he was 30. But uh, one of his jobs was a taxi cab, he drove a taxi. And, it, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing when I tell people that when I was a kid, all the taxi drivers were like, you know, regular white guys just driving a taxi. It wasn't like, a, you know, it was a regular job. His friend that um, also drove a taxi with him co-wrote the book, Bobby Fischer Teaches Chess, which is a very famous chess book, while he's driving a cab. This is what, you know, cab, cab drivers were like that. So... But anyway, he, he somehow cobbled together the money from driving a taxi and opened his first coffee shop. Now, that is unthinkably impossible today. You cannot get enough money in that kind of job to think of opening a restaurant. And the reasons, my firsthand reasons uh, that I see are the, uh, re- responsible for that are probably the opposite of what you're going to say. They come from a lot of well-intended, in my opinion, progressive policies and regulations, which have raised the costs of the barriers, the barriers to entry to small businesses and the expertise you need to have to open small businesses. So impossibly high, mom and pop type stores, with some exceptions, really can't open anymore. And I'll say one more thing. They just raised the, um, or they're about to raise their minimum wage now in New York to $16 an hour. Now, we as the comedy seller, pretty successful. You know, we're just we we take that on the chin. And and just so everybody understands, it's not just the minimum wage that goes up, but basically everybody's salary in the entire chain goes up because people everybody judges their wage in relationship to the minimum wage. So if you were making 17 while the minimum wage was 15, and then people making 15 now making 16, well shit, I want 18 now. And wait, what? And then the manager says, He's making 18, I want so it it it's so it's it's quite expensive. But again, we're successful and we'll, we'll, we handle that. But if I were trying to start out and I had to pay $16 an hour to every employee and hope to make it through, plus the rent, plus the incredible insurance, which is unbelievably high now in a way you wouldn't imagine, and the cost of employment practices and liability insurance and the, the ridiculous accounting costs because you can't possibly do your own books anymore. And, and the, I mean, you, you just go on and on and on how, how it's changed in my lifetime. You, yeah. There's no doubt that you need a million you know, dollars or, or more just to get you through your first year or two when you can hope to get ahead, unless you can have an overnight sensation. That was not the case. It used to be, you could just barely have enough money and you could sort of get by until you've made, made, you know, made, made things happen. So, but That's the minimum wage used to be relatively generous, you know, in the 60s and 70s, but it's just, it's stagnated to the point where, you know, you can't feasibly live in New York yes City or no. San Francisco area. 
Yes and no, because in the restaurant business, they also raised the minimum wage for tipped employees, where tipped employees, it was it was used to be quite, quite low. And, yeah, and, two thir- two thirteen an hour. Yeah, and, and <laughs> you remember that. And it was it was proper to be low because like like I have I have people working for me, they'll make seven, eight hundred dollars in one night in tips, you know, they and, and plus their salary. So there's no real reason they need to be getting paid uh, that much of, of a wage from a policy point of view. I mean, it's fine that they get it. Uh, so, but may, but you're right. In, in certain ways, the minimum wage didn't keep up with inflation. But it, in the overall, it's I think it's undeniable that the, the, the cost to start a business now are exorbitant where they used to be manageable. And that that's is some tool, true, yeah. that, that's by a thousand cuts of many, many well-intended policies so that's the trade-off, in my opinion. But you might have other. But, that, you know, but you'd also say, well, a, a lot of it is the cost of of leasing or renting, you know, your space, right? Which has just soared, especially in cities like New York and San Francisco. You know, the rent is only one. The rent is only one small part of it. It is part of it, but right. the cost of construction is crazy. The, sure. the, the 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 idea that you have to be. I'll tell you another story. I've told it before. We we tried to. Um, move, we did, we moved a non-structural wall at our restaurant back by around five feet, just to, I'm sorry, up by around five feet in order to make our kitchen bigger. Non-structural wall. We had to be closed for six or seven months to do it between the permitting and the landmarks and the community board. And this is something that we probably could have done in two weeks and probably could have done it without closing. No structural, no, nothing to the integrity of nothing. And when we reopened, our business never recovered. Mm. All of which is to say that if you're opening from scratch now, it's almost impossible to get open. And you don't have the money. You just don't have the money to, to last you a year and a half to get open. Was this in New York City? In New York City, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you guys are notorious for <laughs> being difficult place to do business. Well, as all liberal cities are. Yeah, well... It's true. Uh, New York is just, you know, uh, just the idea of trying to open a business there yeah. uh, makes me run for cover. Um, we should talk about money and happiness there, right? But what, but what else contributes to the, to, to the fact that you think the people are, are not getting ahead like they used to, besides what I'm saying? Um, the lack of social mobility. I mean, I don't have a full explanation for it, but, you know, some, a lot of it is, is well, there's you know, the aspect of the way the system is sort of stacked for you know, in favor of the people who already have wealth, and what happens the way when wealth accumulates to the top, they begin buying up everything. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, you know, private equity companies are buying up real estate all over the place, buying up single-family homes, and then renting them back to people, buying up apartment buildings, kind of pulling all this money out, putting them in debt, and then renting them back to people, um, and it. it ends up with a lot of people on the street it ends up people not being able to afford a home um, and also just being paying such high rents that they can barely get by i mean housing is people you know the very poor in this country paying 50 percent of their income in housing it doesn't leave much left over for other things the irony is that they they couldn't pay it if they couldn't afford it you know what i mean like there's always something about me that says well yeah everything's so expensive but it's only that expensive because the landlords can get it it's just weird, you know, and, and also they, they don't build enough housing. I mean, in New York, that's a huge problem. Yeah. There's also going to be a problem, you know, with this, the green revolution, right? We want to, we have to build all these wind farms and, and solar farms and so forth. And 
indeed, it's in a lot of cases, it can be the liberals who get in the way. They're saying, I, I don't want that black in my view, right? Yeah, they, you know, I, I know, let's get to super wealthy. So there's, I've used this analogy before lately. I think it's the same as in the in these laws and regulations as it is. If you ever signed a contract, if, if anybody's ever signed a contract, even for something simple, there's pages and pages of clauses there. What are these clauses? These, this is like an archaeological dig of every lawsuit, every weird thing that's ever happened in the past in a legal sense that some lawyer now has to protect you against this. And, that, and it piles up over the years. And that's what a lot of all the regulations are. Every weird thing, horrible accident, quirky thing that has gone wrong that that makes our heartstrings, that pulls at our heartstrings, we respond to with a law. So that will never happen again. And these are all well-intentioned. And, and at the time, who could oppose such things? But the sum total of these things at some point does weigh things down, I believe, in a way that becomes counterproductive and, and somehow something needs to be done to clear away this brush. And people need to not call it heartless because we are clearly in a stagnant period and we need to be open-minded to look at everything the right and the left says about what might be causing this stagnation because there's probably good sense coming from all directions on this issue. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Yeah, There probably right. is. Tell us about the super wealthy. What do you want to know about it? <laughs> What's the worst They're getting thing? wealthier all the time. <laughs> well, um, how do they hurt me? I'm, I'm, I'm well off. I'm not super wealthy for sure. So how do they hurt me? And then tell well, me. Well, part, part, part of the way they hurt you is by, um, by essentially being able to have it's essentially a huge pot of money to deploy at their will um, and to be able to, to um, I'm not really saying this very well. It's okay. <laughs> it's, it's been a while since I talked about one. the book. I mean, you know, wealth in America, in, in some way, it's a zero-sum game. And for some people to have the kind of money that these people have, other people have to have very little. And so it, it's not just that it happens organically, which it does to some degree, but our, the you know government policy, the way the tax code works, it's actually you know if you think about a, a welfare system where we lift some people on the bottom, we're actually giving a lot more to the upper end, um, and that's sort of taking away from the commons. They have so much money that means that other people have to be have less. That's not the way money works, is it? Is well, that, it kind of is. I mean, a finite the, supply of money. Well, that's technically the the government can just print money, right? Um, well, people create money, but they're, you know. With yeah. The, okay. Yes, there there is growth in that, but if you look at, you know, there have been studies I, I sort of cite in my book about like actual growth in the markets, for instance, for in from like the you know 30s through the 70s were based on actual increase in the value of companies, like real economic growth, and then from the 80s onward most of the growth in the market was just sort of real, they call it reallocation of rents. Basically, you know, shareholders and investors and, and, and executives reworking things so they were taking a much greater share. I mean, and so, the, so the, the size of the economic pie was not increasing, but they were taking a much bigger slice of it. I don't, I know people roll their eyes, but I, I don't have any reflexive uh, sympathy for the super wealthy, but I, I do have some observations about it, which is, um, just in, in no particular order. First of all, it was interesting that that it came out that Trump 
had wanted to raise taxes on the super wealthy. And uh, what was what was his um, Secretary of Treasury's name? Uh, was it Paulson at that time? No, no, no. it was a Mnuchin. Anyway, Mnuchin. Was it Mnuchin? I, maybe. Um, told him that listen, you can't do that. And Trump, Trump's answer was, they don't care anyway. And they said, no, no, McConnell's never going to go for the Republican. You're a Republican now. They're not going to go for raising tax on the super wealthy. So I always thought that was an interesting thing. And I've heard that before from you've, we've in various times super wealthy people indicate. We don't really care if you raise our taxes a little bit. There, you know, there's like the, the Buffets of the world or whatever it is. But that's neither here nor there. Yeah, well, some of, there's like, first of all, it's a small number of them saying that. And the what? ones, I, I call them like the good billionaires, right? Right. And they go out and they say, hey, tax us more. There's even a group called the Patriotic Millionaires, and they actually go out and advocate for fairer tax policies. But then, like, one thing I observe is that they all hire... Wall Street firms or big, you know, wealth management companies, or they have family offices, whatever, to to manage their wealth. And all of these or all of these organizations lobby heavily to keep all the things the way they are. So on one hand, they're saying tax me more, but they know sort of in the background, their people are the right. people they hire are lobbying the government to like, really, yeah, keep carried interest and keep this ridiculous trust structure and keep giving more money to our my my five billion dollar Roth IRA. You know, Peter Thiel has a five billion dollar Roth IRA. I, I heard that uh, he did a, he did an interview with Barry Weiss. I heard it this way. Excellent, by the way, he's super smart guy, an interesting guy. But yeah, Peter he, Thiel. Yeah, yeah. I, I found that that interview very interesting. I didn't agree with everything he said, but this guy. So wait, did he talk about his his Roth IRA? Yeah, he did. Interesting. Yeah. She asked him about it, and he he acknowledged it. So I I don't think that um, I, I, that the super wealthy spend their money any worse than it would be spent if the government had it to spend. The government you know spends money ridiculously. Um, a lot of these super wealthy people do great things. I would mm-hmm. say that during uh, like there's a lot of resentment about Amazon and companies like that. But my goodness, during COVID, Amazon kept a lot of people healthy and safe by being able to order so much online. I, I don't know how you um, overcome the the reality that the world has gotten so small now that we're used to, the best a business used to be able to hope to do was to sell to the people within a 20 mile radius of their store and then have to open more stores if you wanted to make that bigger. And now you can open up, I can open up a business in this building alone and sell to the entire planet Earth and make a billion dollars. And that's never, you know, that's just changed. So some people are going to get super wealthy. But, well, that's that's the Internet. I mean, you, yeah, you, know, you don't need Amazon to do that. Right. But I'm saying that's like so we have super wealthy people now. But this is my leading. I'm leading to this point, which is if, if all the billionaires in the world move to America. Wealth inequality would get much worse in America but we'd certainly be better off to have all those people here. So that it's it's not on its face. It doesn't seem, I don't understand how the super, super wealthy are hurting us. The psychological damage is real that we started with. And that may be insurmountable. That alone might be warrant punitive measures against the super wealthy just because People can't stand the fact that these people make so much money. Bill Gates is the richest man in America, and it's a blowout. He, he is worth $59 billion. $59 billion. He makes everybody in here look destitute. 
And I know, even if you're like, no, I'm, it's okay, I'm a billionaire. No, fuck you, you are broke <laughs> compared to Bill Gates. He, we have nothing in common with him. He has nothing in common with your, your run-of-the-mill garden variety, single-digit billionaires. <laughs> like, most of your billionaires, let's be honest, are, have one billion dollars. <laughs> They're what I like to call barely billionaires. <laughs> Whenever I'm introduced to a billionaire as a billionaire, and it turns out they've only got one billion dollars, I always say under my breath, barely. <laughs> But how, how's it actually translated? But how big a factor is that? I mean, how, you know, how how jealous is the average? I'm not really seeing that. You know, I see a lot of these guys, they're firemen, policemen, they're, they're, you know, they, I'm not hearing them grouse about the billionaires. They're happy with their pension and, uh, you know, and uh, their good insurance and, you know, and uh, I, I'm... Funny, it's funny, people always talk about firefighters, but they actually make pretty damn good. Cops and firefighters make good money, make a lot but, of money. But they they're not bill but they're not being bothered by the billionaires. I don't think. I don't hear them complain. I, I go down to well, we compare, we, and that's, we, they're all vacationing there. They're having a wonderful time. You know, where they're retired. We generally, we compare ourselves to people close to us yeah. in you know in occupation and income and religion or whatever. You know, our family groups. Um, I mean, if you, it's like, I, I think there's a line in the book was a quote from somebody saying, you know, beggars don't envy billionaires. They envy the beggar with a, you know, okay. with a better, okay. better so, panhandling quarter. Okay. Um, so who are the firemen envying? The fire commissioner. I don't, and, um, and, and, and I guess the thought, so and does money buy happiness? It buys some. It doesn't buy happiness proper. It's like, you know, it's, it's one of many factors. Uh, but you know, a, a lot. I feel like a lot too much emphasis is placed on it. What it buys, especially, is Freedom. lack of lack of misery. Freedom. Right, lack of misery. It, it, it buys. You know, people who are very poor. You, there's a much bigger effect when they their money increases because they are, you know. They're they're no longer <laughs> worried about the rent. Well, no, you what know, about somebody that's not they can pay poor. off their debts? What about somebody that's not poor that but that has a job? They don't really like that much, and mm. money would allow them to say, "I'm out of here. I'm going to do." Well, you know, I know a guy that was a lawyer for twenty years. He he didn't much like it. He wanted to be a high school teacher, uh, but he was sort of stuck. And it, he eventually became a high school teacher. But but he he could have pursued that earlier if he had had, I guess, more more money to to uh, to leave his. Yeah, lobby. I mean, on on an individual level, of course, like there's. I'm not saying that for particular individuals, it, does, it can't really increase the value of the way you see yourself in the world and so forth and the way you live. Um, it's just that it hasn't really been measured because, I mean, it hasn't been measured any kind of before and after study with looking at the same people over time. Um, and the data is probably out there, but nobody has crunched it. Like all the studies that exist look, just compare groups, you know, people in this bracket, people in this bracket. And they look at different things, but it's there's no way of knowing what what happens when you come into a lot of money. Well, except we have an example except of, anecdotally. We have an example of right with us, Noam Dorman, who's, as he said, he's not super wealthy, but he does quite well. Uh, and that wasn't always the case. So here's a guy, we have an example of a guy that 
used to worry about money, doesn't worry about money anymore. Noam, how's your happiness uh, level been affected by that? Okay, I can tell you uh, that um, the main thing that, I might have said this on the show before, the main thing that I noticed that money has bought for me is um, not having to worry about certain things like when I had a new car and like 10 days after I got it, my wife smashed it up where that would have been like a major source of, of horror for me 10 years ago. I was like, all right, I'll get it fixed. And then I have the money to fix it. Or, or if the, like now we need a new air conditioner in my house, you get hit with this thing and it's, it's, it's thousands of dollars. And there was a time when you get hit with this unexpected expense of thousands of dollars. It upends everything, your plans. You might have to cancel vacation. You know, it's just horrible. And now I'm able to say, ah, I'll fix the air conditioner. You know, it sucks, but I'll fix it. Well, so what that, about freedom to not do shit you don't want to no, do? No, no. At a, at, a at a much lower level of money, I was already able to, and I mean much, much lower, to, to eat out when I wanted to eat out, go to the movies, take a girl on a date, you know, had a car. It wasn't as nice a car as I have now, but that didn't matter. Not, not, there was no actual... But also at, you were young. At a pretty low uh, upper middle class, I'd say, lifestyle, you were really able to do most things that you want to do. Take a vacation. You stay... I mean, I, you'd stay in a, in a Holiday Inn instead of... But that doesn't matter. You, you still have the time of your life on the vacation. As you get right. older, yeah, I think this, this being able to uh, protect you to uh, buffet you or whatever, butch, buttress you against uh, unexpected things that happen to life, especially as you get older. This is a really nice thing about money. But nothing brings happiness like being involved in some project or a career or whatever it is or a child, whatever it is, that gives you real fulfillment. No amount of money can give you that. And yeah, this, the, the research that's been done on it looks especially at people's social connections is the people that have extensive social connections that tend to be the happiest. Yeah. Um, well, interesting, you said about the fulfillment of having children. I have two kids, and uh, it actually, in these articles on money and happiness, they, they cite being a caregiver, like a parent, as a negative happiness effect. Um, because, because, and I, I mean, I see it. It's it, people are, it increases your worry and your stress and and your financial needs. Uh, so I mean, I can definitely see that. My my kids uh, are wonderful, but I worry about them all the time. Right, but I, something wrong. Something obviously, I think you would agree with. Something is wrong with the nuance of that measurement. If it would, I mean, it, it, it would put kids in the list of things that. People, make people unhappy, except it's well. the, nobody would undo that. With the other right. things in that list, they would traditionally say, "Oh, thank God, I got rid of those." Yeah, get rid of my kids. Or I've, you know, or I wish I never. But had I'll tell kids. you, my kids are going off to college, and I'm I'm feeling pretty good. As I was saying, it's a compl- it's a complex it's it's a thing that brings you a lot of worry and a lot of stress and a lot of unhappiness and also in, indescribable joy and and pleasure. Right? Yeah. Do you have kids? I have three, 11, nine, and five. Yeah. So I yeah, and, but uh, you know, but when you know when things are going badly for them, you feel it like it's happening oh, to you. It's, it's, they say, I, uh, Harry said, but also someone said to me on today on the phone in another context that you're only as happy as your least happy child, mm. and and there's a, a lot of truth to that. So I would say that, um, you know, I've I've said in a, in a kind of 
I didn't mean it to be sexist, but it has come out sounding sexist. Peril is looking at me. That <laughs> most <laughs> jobs are so crappy. My father used to say, no, I'm, most people can't wait for the weekend. This was his like way of, of separating the rest of the world from himself. Like He never wanted to be one of those people who waited all week just to get to Saturday when they could do what they wanted to do. And he'd say, no, I'm never be one of those people. Don't do anything you don't want to do. He'd say, make sure your career, you're doing exactly what you want to do. So he, and he, and he lived that way. Um, but I feel like there's a lot of social pressure on women to have careers, even if it's a crappy career that nobody, like an accountant, who wants to like go to work every day and crunch numbers and deal with clients and worry about getting it wrong. And I'd be, I'd be like, you should go, you should go be a mom. That's so much better. Like, like then, then oh these crappy, God. The, well, this, I knew, I know it comes out sexist, but I'm telling you as a, as a person who has had crappy jobs, if I could have had not to do, like, I get it. If you have an awesome job, like you, you're, you're doing stuff you like, you're a writer, you're a comedian, things that you would do for free, things that gave you fulfillment. I understand that, of course. But I'm saying a lot of people, I feel like there's a pressure to take, to have a career, as it were, even if it's not a career, even if you can't wait for the weekend. I'm like, if you're in a job where you can't wait for the weekend, why do that if you have other options? Because there's pressure. Like, have a family. No, I, it's better. I, I think that I, in my... And that's not a sexist thing to say, by the way. No, that that's... Well, the only part that's a little bit questionable is, like, being a mom is really hard. Right, and but, it, and but it's it gives also, you tremendous fulfillment. But it's also invisible labor that you don't get paid for, that you are... Well, it's true. I mean, there there are effects of, well, of I, doing I, that. I mean, in, in a sense, where you have a family, where you have a breadwinner uh, in the man, where that you can, that you can, if you can't afford it, that's that's an sure, indictment no, of our, I, it's an indictment of our society in a sense. And and actually, part of the reason you can't afford it is this dynamic where the marketplace has changed. So every, all the rents, all the expenses have come up to to grab all the money from two earner households. When when everybody was a one earner household. Everything was cheaper because nobody right, could but, afford it. But, but anyway. the only people who stayed home were women. Men were never. It's like why don't why don't the men stay home and be dads? I was going to make the same point. Uh, it's not. Yes, I listen. I I have a very good friend who was a partner at uh, Skadden Arps, and he left the law to stay home to be a stay home dad. So, but the fact is, there is something about being a mom, which is just, you get roped in because of your biology. I mean, that's just the nature. Well, that's, that's partially, that's true. You get roped in because of your biology, but also the very, most of the very lucrative jobs out there are in the hands of men. Yeah. And there are, there is actually very hard for women, you know, to become a partner at a law firm, to get funding, to start a business, all these sorts of things. I, I have a chapter called Women on Top that explores that. And what does it say? Well, I mean, it starts out with talking about the Fortune 500 and how, you know, a couple of years ago, like there was this exciting new news. It's like there were now four women CEOs in the Fortune 500. <laughs> and, and why do you think that is? I mean, I, I, I'm on good standing because all my most important employees are women, right, Periel? Yes. Yeah, I'm, 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 and and I, and they're great. So why is it that there's so few uh, women CEOs? Well, there's 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 a lot of barriers to getting there. <laughs> Not you know, also people saying you should stay home and be a mom, and sometimes that's by choice, right? 
I mean, the, I actually had dinner with a guy the other day that I hadn't seen in a long time, and he was making a similar argument. And I said, look, that's fine, but it's not your decision, pal. It's like, it's up to... Yeah, of course. But I, also, I, but, but, also ahead, but, but also, it's like for as much joy and love and fulfillment as one might get from being a mother, um, you know, that's not necessarily the only thing people want to do right like you could want to be like your example of being a father is actually pretty good because you are an incredibly present incredibly involved my well you are um dad but you also have the luxury and i don't mean the luxury that like not that you aren't working very hard for it or that you haven't but to come and go and to do as you please and you have your band and your music and the podcast. I'm the, luck, I'm the luckiest man on earth. No, nobody should compare themselves to me. What I'm, I'm just saying is it's a good example because that that's part of why I think you are able to be such a great father is because you are also able to be fulfilled in those other ways. Let me, can I put my point in, in another way? I think that we have too much uh, idolatry of careers and earning and all that stuff in this country. And mm-hmm. I think that it's insufficient uh, uh, acknowledgement that, you know what, having a career is not the be all and end all. Some careers are wonderfully fulfilling, but a lot of careers are drudgery. Right. And, you know, it's no shame to say, fuck this. This is drudgery. Like, 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 and, and being a mom is hard work too. But if you're going to put an equal amount of hard work into your, your awful career or your kids at least the the kids give your life meaning that's all i'm saying and 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 so many jobs don't and i feel like that's kind of a third rail of sort of like feminist politics or something you're not really supposed to say hey you know what it's it's totally fine if if you if you don't like your dumb job and you can afford it be a mom it's awesome but how come nobody's saying that to men i told you why because because it just doesn't work out that way for men. You know, men women have the children that takes it, and then they 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 breastfeed them, and that that career is interrupted. And God forbid, they might have a certain maternal instinct at that time that makes them do that job. It's funny, you know. This is this is anti-feminist. We hear all the time: women are better at this, women are better at that, women are better at that. Women should women should be present. They won't fight wars. We've heard all these kind of things, right? But if you say, but actually. Women are better at raising babies. What are you crazy? <laughs> but maybe women are better at raising babies. No, there's, there's, there's. <laughs> How can you say such a thing? <laughs> there's your argument is deeply flawed, and I'll tell you why. Deeply, not just flawed, deeply flawed. Because what winds up happening in the scenario that you're setting up is that once the woman is no longer needed, quote unquote, which is to say that the child is now old enough to go to high school or college um, and you have no meaning in your life. So you've spent 18 years pouring your entire heart and soul into this child, which may and probably is very rewarding. I wouldn't know because I ignore my kid most of the time. I from from can remember her name. Yeah, but Camille Paglia yeah. had written. It says that nature is the oppressor. That's one of hers. That that nature is the oppressor. And in some ways, in some ways, there is that truth. Nature is the oppressor. 
But then you essentially, when you go out and have kids, you come back and your career, your earning potential has taken a huge hit. Sure. Sometimes just getting back into the job market is yeah. difficult. I, I don't mean, know any women who don't need to work, who have jobs who they hate, that which they hate. Excuse well, that's good. Me. That's good. I do. You do? Yeah, I know. But anyway, it's neither here nor there. It's just an interesting thing. I, I think that, and, and this is a theme for, you know, a lot of, a lot of issues, including like the stuff about trans people we talk about. It's like, I think our goal ought to be to everybody should try to, to, to be everybody free to lead a, a fulfilling life. Like that is the most important thing. By the way, Bruce Springsteen's but, mother was the breadwinner because his father was mentally ill and could only work intermittently. Mm. She was a legal secretary. And she uh, spent, you know, she didn't have a lot of money, but she bought Bruce his first guitar for his, for about whatever it cost, like $10. And you talk about a good investment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, best one they ever made. Paid off. All right, I guess we're, we're just about out of time. Um, this is fascinating stuff, and it's important stuff. I did want to say, because sure. we were just talking about that, that the the uh, in one of these papers they cite studies about you know, they ask people, do you think money is important? And that turns out whether you think money is important doesn't have a big effect on your well-being, uh, the association between, you know, income and happiness. But if they ask, do you essentially equate money with success? If they answer in the positive of that, it presages like poor outcomes. Ah, that's interesting. It's so, interesting. So it is. So it's like if, you, if you're chasing a career for the sake of money because you think it's going to make you successful, that's really a losing battle. I'll tell you what money does buy you, buys you life. Uh, I was reading a study, um, and I sent it to Noam, that richer people, richer, not only do richer people live longer than poorer people, but there doesn't seem to be an upper limit to that. Um, even they'll never die. Well, not that they'll never die, but they, I mean, it, it's, it's like an, you know, it, it increase, but the, the increase is less and less and less, but you know, rich people do live longer. Um, it, actually a lot of very, very wealthy people are obsessed with longevity and mm -hmm. take, doing all kinds of weird treatments to extend their lives, which, you know, who knows? Yeah. Peter Thiel. But, but if those treatments are ever available, they're going to be the first to get them, of course. Peter Thiel said he's getting his he's getting his uh, head uh, cryo or his whole body cryogenically frozen. He said he just says he doesn't believe it works, but he's doing it anyway. Um, I, I gotta wonder about those people because like, you know, two thousand years in the future, and it comes around time. It's like, oh, we're pulling the plug on the company. <laughs> the, the heads can thaw. You know, I would like to live forever. I I, I don't understand people say oh, I don't want to live forever. Of course, I want to. Well, I don't want to suffer, but I want to. What do you want to do forever? Every I love every day, and I, I'd love to to um, uh, see what the future holds. I'll tell you, what, I'll tell you what the I'll tell you what the future holds if you live forever is that the sun gets incredibly <laughs> hot and <laughs> burns up all the oceans oh, evaporate, and uh, then eventually the sun. Well, they don't know whether or not the sun will actually swallow the earth <laughs> or not, but suffice it to say that there will be no water. Left on this planet, Dan. That's by twenty one hundred. What's that? About, no, what you're talking about like, the prediction for twenty one hundred. Oh, twenty one hundred. No, not by twenty one hundred. We're talking about like six hundred million years, or a bit. no, like six hundred million years. The oceans are going to evaporate, I think, and then in like billions more years, the sun might swallow up the Earth or whatever. So, anyway, um, can you imagine? And, and Noam's going to be there. Noam will be there <laughs> with his guitar. 
Can you imagine what the future holds? I mean, if, if this like AI thing doesn't end us, which I don't think it will, but it could. Um, well, I mean, I, just the, the breakthroughs that are coming in the next hundred years in terms of. Do you remember how, how the guy in Highlander makes his money? No. He's an antique stealer because he knows he's living forever. He just buys stuff and puts it in storage and then sells it like a hundred oh. years later. <laughs> like, like a, yeah, I didn't, so I didn't easy. Remember. But you are living in the future. I mean, well, you're, everybody's well, compared living. to yeah, just yeah. in the past. Compared to you know when we were no, born, they, right? They're going to make some breakthroughs in terms of human health in the next twenty, fifty years, which are going to change everything. Well, what Dan pointed out, they haven't in the past ten years to uh, you know to use AOS and Parkinson's as those but, examples. But they will, Perio. They 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 will they will reverse. Mark my words. They will reverse aging. They are going to reverse aging. And when that when they figure that out, boy, will you want to be wealthy then? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, suppose, suppose it was within the, the means of the average person to extend their lives, you know, 50 years. That could create all kinds of problems. Right? It will cause problems for sure. But um, the, the, the youth aren't going to gonna like it. They'll work out the problems. They'll work it out. There's something really... It's not natural. I mean, it's like so controlled. Antibiotics already are not natural. Of course, there's a lot of things that are not natural. But, but listen, nobody's stuff's got to die, though. What'd you say, Mike? Life. I said stuff's got to die. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So, so that's that's that. Uh, uh, everybody, buy Michael Mechanic's book, Jackpot. Uh, available on Amazon, but if you don't want to give that money grubbing <laughs> scum of the sure earth, uh, <laughs> Jeff Bezos, any money, you books. can you can drive ten miles to Barnes and Noble. By the way, there's a Barnes and Noble <laughs> opening up on the Upper East Side. Opening up, I said. You can get it from independent sites. There's there's links on my website. It's readjackpot.com. Does nobody hear what I'm saying? A Barnes and yeah. Noble is opening. Well, this is this is a whole other interesting phenomenon that you how know, the hell does that happen? The same way vinyl is coming back. Like like something, not all trees grow to the sky. Not every trend continues. Sometimes it, people might say, you know, retail is not so bad. But I I love Amazon. Anyway, thank you, Michael Mechanic. You're, thank yeah, you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you, Thanks for having me. If you're in New York, come visit us at the cellar. I will. Uh, um, half I'll price. So you don't, no, I'm kidding. You, 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 yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, sir. Good night.